Welcome to Season 4 of The Farcast, bringing you experts and insiders every week to help you navigate the economic and investing landscape. Now, here's your host, Michael Farr. Welcome to The Farcast. I am Michael Farr. Thanks so much for joining us again this week. We are here on the 10th of September, 2020. Uh, stocks rebounded fabulously yesterday. Uh, we had uh, a reversal of the tech wreck. We had the tech rally. Everybody seemed to be able to exhale. We saw those tech share prices go higher and everybody went, phew. Uh, I'm glad that unpleasantness is over with. I was tired of seeing my balances go down for four or five days. This gnat-like attention span and knee-jerk reaction, to mix my metaphors entirely, uh, it is a little bit frustrating to an older uh, Wall Street hand um, because investing has always been something for the long term, and it it's still for the long term. But we still, but we want all of these sort of sh- very short term affirmations and reaffirmations. And when we don't get them, there's more and more investors who seem to go through the temper tantrum. They sign on to their Robin Hood accounts and they sell, and uh, they drive the computers crazy and take them lower. Well, uh, we've had some pretty good selling. We've seen about a 10% correction in the technology stocks. That's been kind of a uh, that's been a kind of kind of a big deal. It's been rather unwelcome. Tesla has taken the brunt of it. Look, ladies and gentlemen, as I said quite frequently in the late 90s, anything that can go up really fast can go down really fast. So no matter what you own, you need to make sure that there is some there there after all of the yelling and screaming is over and the smoke has cleared, do you own anything that is worth a damn? And um, if you don't have earnings and you don't have a balance sheet, my uh, suggestion is that concepts are very hard to take to the bank at bill-paying time. So uh, something with a good balance sheet, not too much debt, is always well-advised. And nobody ever agree with, agrees with me on that when stocks are running up. Don't listen to far. This is going up, and I'm making money, and I don't. But when they're going down, they're like, people say, oh, oh, that this is what he meant? Oh, this is what he meant. I get it. I get it now. Um, so I said a week ago on CNBC, I said it in various newspapers, and I certainly said it on the Farcast, that – I did not believe that this particular correction was going to be particularly long or deep. Uh, I think that um, it's probably premature to call it over with today's rally in tech. It's something of a relief rally. We'll see if it continues a bit. But a meaningful correction just doesn't seem possible to me with the Federal Reserve uh, easing even more. We got news a week and a half ago that the Federal Reserve was having a policy change. You'll remember we talked about it. They're going to let their inflation targeting uh, expand. They're adding elasticity to that upside of inflation. They're going to let it run hot. So that means that they're going to keep rates low for a really long time. And if inflation starts to go up, they're not, you know what they're going to do about it? Nothing, nothing. They're not going to do a damn thing about it. They're going to let inflation go up. So with an accommodative Fed, that's ready and willing to try and come and be more even accommodative if they need to be, and a uh, fiscal side of economic policy, that part that comes from Congress and the Treasury and the president, uh, where they're trying to get an increased spending bill through, there's even more money coming to this market. How long can it really correct 
when the Federal, Federal Reserve uh, and government, fiscal part of the government, are throwing money at it, uh, it can't go down that long. And that's what we've seen all this 2020 year. We saw markets go down in a pandemic. We saw supply chain disruption. We saw real, real problems. And markets stopped caring as soon as the Federal Reserve uh, came riding to the rescue with sack loads of cash. Uh, and, the, and the federal government, of course, added more spending in their $600 a week checks. And, and that really did solve the problem for a while. A lot of these problems can be solved by this cash. And therefore, I don't think that that particular tech downturn is going to last long. Not sure it's over with yet, but stay tuned. Remember that I've cautioned that you really should um, go against your feelings and your instincts when it comes to investing. It, it is, as Jim Labenthal points out, the George Costanza approach. When I'm absolutely sure, 100 percent sure that it's the wrong thing to do, that's what I do every time. Uh, the far corollary is if it feels bad, do it. When does it feel bad to sell? When your stock's making new highs. When your stock's making new highs. When your stock's at an all-time high. When you have tripled your investment, it feels bad to sell. But you should sell some right about those times. When should you buy? You should have bought back in March, just when you were ready to take gold bars and bury them in your backyard. That's when you should buy. So if it feels bad in investing, uh, do it. Um, so the volatility is, is with us more than ever. When people complain about volatility, they're talking about downside volatility, like we saw at the end of last week and early this week. That's the downside volatility everybody hates. Today was a very volatile day. We were up, seven, or yesterday was, up 700 points. Uh, we closed up 400 and some odd points. Nobody calls and complains about that volatility. It was enormously volatile. And everybody says, thank God it was volatile. That was good, up 440 points. That was good. NASDAQ recovered over 2% just in one day. That's pretty big. The other things that I'm looking at as I look at markets right now uh, the dollar does seem to have stabilized, uh, not in a strong position, but stabilized. Gold is still hovering uh, below $2,000 an ounce. That's still a really high price for gold. Oil has come down substantially, $5 a barrel, $6 a barrel. It's $37.78 is where it uh, is going to open this morning, $37.78. 10-year Treasury right at about 70 basis points, 7 tenths of 1%. For that treasury, the German Bund is, still has a negative yield of about a half a percent. The Japan 10-year is paying you two-tenths of one percent. Can't imagine. But um, those interest rates, all of that looks stable for a while. So the economic background after all of the unemployment and Fed news shakeup has become a bit more stable. The unemployment data was certainly positive, and markets and stocks are bouncing back. It's the silly season for politics. We're going to talk with Dan Mahaffey when we come back about the changes in uh, Vice President Biden's polling numbers. They've been, uh, they've been kind of holding steady while President Trump's have been improving. What's that going to mean for markets and stocks? And then Mona Mahijans is coming up in our third segment. She is the uh, chief U.S. strategist for Allianz. Absolutely terrific. Brilliant, brilliant strategist. We always look forward to talking with Mona. So, uh, great forecast coming up for you. Uh, when it comes to your portfolio, take a deep breath. Please take a deep breath. We are investing for the next five to 10 years. Elections come and go. The republic will survive. 
Will these companies in corporate America continue to grow? Far says they will. Stick with them. Don't make emotional decisions. Time and not timing make money in stocks. Leave your emotions at the door. Think about the long term. And if we can help, call us at Farm Miller. We're coming right back with Dan Mahaffey. Thanks so much for being with us this week. Please share us on your social media. I'll be right back. Thank you for joining us on this week's forecast. We'd like to invite you to follow Michael on Twitter and LinkedIn. On his social media feed, you'll find links to all of Michael's media appearances, articles he's been quoted in in such newspapers as the Wall Street Journal and Washington Post, and, of course, the forecast. Additionally, Michael shares some of the articles we are reading at Farm Miller in Washington every morning that we feel have bearing on the investing landscape. That's Michael underscore K underscore Farr on Twitter and Michael Farr on LinkedIn. And now, back to Michael and the Farcast. Welcome back to the Farcast, and now here's your host, Michael Farr. And we're back. Thanks for joining us again this week on the Farcast. It is such a great privilege to be with you, and we thank you so much for tuning in and for sharing us on social media. We keep picking up new listeners every week, and we appreciate their notes, their texts, and their emails to uh, hjennings at farmiller.com. Harry shares these with me. Well, he shares the nice ones with me. He actually protects me from some of those that aren't quite as nice. And there are some of those, but I'm glad you're listening, and I hope that we are encouraging you uh, to be more thoughtful about some of the major issues affecting Wall Street, Washington, and the world, and this, how they're all going to bear on investors and the economy. Uh, we are, as you know, uh, nonpartisan uh, on the forecast, as is our senior political analyst, Dan Mahaffey, from the Center for the uh, Study of the Presidency and Congress. Uh, welcome back, Dan Mahaffey. Thanks, Michael. Good here to be back here with you. We are glad you're here, and we learn so much every week. Dan, let's start. As we look at this election, the numbers are changing. 54 days now until the election, the countdown, the clock is ticking. The odds are, the poll numbers are changing uh, in favor of President Trump as we get closer to the election date. What do you make of these changes uh, and why are why is uh, President Trump beginning to advance now? First of all, it's after Labor Day. Welcome to the real election season, finally. This is the kind of tightening a lot of us expect to see in a highly polarized America. I think you see it, too, with folks starting to pay attention to the election more. Donald Trump enjoyed a post-convention bounce, although some would argue it was a blip. Uh, and then you also start to see this narrative of the violence on American streets. Is that playing? How is that affecting the, the narrative in a lot of people's minds? Uh, again, though, a lot of it comes down to being ultimately a referendum on Donald Trump and his leadership. Okay, but the, the, the president here is, is doing better in these polls. And nothing seems to be changing very much. I mean, uh, Vice President Biden has been uh, out there a little bit more. Kamala Harris has been out there a little bit more. And yet polls are moving towards uh, President Trump. Is that all the economy? Is that the unemployment data? What is it? We see a little bit of the summer uh, period where at least we were able to get out and about more. Uh, outdoor eating, dining, the, the COVID spike of earlier in the summer had died down. Uh, we'll see how the fall pans out when it comes to that. 
the economic numbers, too, it's interesting. The challenge the president has is if you tie your economic performance to a stock market, and albeit a stock market divorced from some of the economic fundamentals, how do you chart that performance and perception when he talks that up alongside the economic question? So there, there's that. I finally think, though, you have to look at the, the support among uh, Latinos. That has weakened somewhat with the violence on the streets, talking about socialism. That message has resonated with them. But I would not be so nervous in the Biden camp yet because Donald Trump's approval numbers, they aren't rising. And Biden is still maintaining a, a pretty solid six to seven point lead, a lot safer than Hillary Clinton was back in 2016. Historically, Dan, how much should we expect these poll numbers to swing between now and the election? Not too much. And we're even going to see the questions about whether the debates will have that much of the impact. People are very set in their ideologies right now. Uh, the biggest questions now come down to not so much who's going to move which way or the other, but what turnout is among different groups. 19 days to the debate, 19 days. We'll see how all of that plays out. Dan, I'm going to come back and uh, to you and, and ask you for your sort of prediction. Let's revisit this. You had been suggesting earlier in the year that you saw from what you were seeing in the data and polls a blue wave in November that you thought we would see uh, the uh, that Biden would take the White House, that the Senate would take on a Democratic majority and the House would remain Democratic. We would have a blue wave in Washington. You still feel that way? I do feel that way. I'm a little more cautious about it if they can really see this law and order message turn against Trump. I don't think it is sufficiently, though. Biden still has that seven-point lead. And if you look at how the structural advantage of the electoral college is for the Republicans, uh, if the Democrats are only up by five, four points, then you have to start looking swing state by swing state at the Electoral College. At six to seven points as a nationwide lead, Biden starts to pull away, and you're less concerned about that. Though yeah, but hang on. That's California and New York could give you a four-point lead, just those two states. And there's really no question about them, right? But you look at those, but that is the same sort of trends that drive much as you look at a, uh, a swing in an election overseas or a party swing in a parliamentary election. That's the kind of swings that at least allow you to do kind of a back-of-the-envelope look at how Florida, Ohio, Texas, sure, certainly they will be swings, but you have to think you get more in some areas, but that means less folks are turning out in swing states as well. Uh, I, look, I read uh, my friend Greg Valliere is one of my go-to folks when I can't get you on the phone. Valliere says 25% chance still that Biden walks away with this election and sweeps the Senate along with him. 30% chance of a narrow Biden victory that may be challenged in court with the Senate very much still in play. So what do you think about that as a 25% chance Biden walks away? And that's a total 55% chance that Biden still wins that election. Is that, do you think those numbers are, are fair or is it I think that's, that's fair. And I would put Biden's probably overall total at, at 60%, but still put, you know, not increase the, the landslide or, or runaway uh, perception. Look, I think it's going to be close and a lot of it's going to come down to uh, how we prepare our perceptions for the uh, 
post immediate post-election period and how it will be different than years past. But historically, too, I think there is the example of uh, 1980, where Carter and Reagan were actually very close until the, the very end when it broke towards Reagan, simply because as people finally felt the decision coming, they looked at Carter's leadership and said it was time to walk away from that. And 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 they voted uh, they voted Reagan in. I think there was a feeling of kinship with Reagan, uh, that sense of uh, warmth that you were getting your uh, uh, grandfather in as president of the United States. He smiled at the right times. He told uh, nice uh, sort of you know uh, charming yarns. Uh, and would shake his hands and shake his head and, and you know, say, uh, you know, he just doesn't There care. he goes again. Or there he goes again. And, and, and we related, you know. Yeah. Uh, he, he, he said that people had questioned his age and that he thought that was ridiculous. And he had said so many years ago to Thomas Jefferson. So he would do things like that uh, that were very, very funny. And people – but you, I, I'm, I'm bringing that part of President Reagan up because um, – Joe Biden fits that kind of Uncle Joe profile, that comfortable person who, you know, it, it looks like uh, you just kind of want to like and certainly in many ways seems more likable than the president. Well, well, that and there's always been the challenge, I think, with all these negative stories you have here. If, if I was someone in the White House, usually you always hear if you're denying someone's comments Usually you have a president, when there's a comment, they say, goodness, no, he would never say anything like that, or he doesn't sound like that. You have no one defending President Trump like that right now. Dan, I have uh, folks asking me about selling now. This has been the question I've been getting as I've been out and speaking and talking to different clients and other constituents, some public speaking I've been doing here lately over the Internet, which has been fascinating to learn how to do. Uh, shouldn't we sell? Why, why do you want to sell? I don't know. Why would you want to sell? I mean, if they tell me they need the money in the near term, then the answer is yes. But uh, no, we're worried about the election. What are you worried about? And it's funny. Half the people say, well, we're worried if Trump wins, everything's going to go to hell and we should sell now because there are going to be riots in the street and there's civil unrest and all of these uh, Antifa people are going to go nuts and burn everything down, and we've got to sell if Trump wins. The other half say, well, what if Biden wins? My taxes are going to go up. Uh, we're really electing Kamala Harris. We don't know who we're getting. We're getting the radical left. Everybody's going to control Joe Biden. It's not going to be Joe Biden, but we should sell our stocks. Now, my answer has been, please don't do anything like this with your stocks. Your stocks are something you want to own for the next five to 10 years. And these sorts of emotional decisions, I can tell you, do not work out uh, the vast majority of the time. So uh, unless you think you are really, really exceptional or going to somehow grab this right, I'm going to go ahead and tell you you're going to get it wrong. But why the well, fear uh, in the comments that I'm hearing? Well, Michael, I would I would advise people to think back to Winston Churchill's quote that Americans do the right thing after they've exhausted every other option. Right. So that's, that's one piece of advice to hold on to your investments, because it just takes time for Americans to get to the right option. Uh, but also that you have the sense of, look, the system is going to be tested in the near term. We could have uh, a week, 10 days where we don't know the clear outcome of the election. Uh, those are all near term challenges we face. But longer term, you think of the political structure of this country, the software it runs on. And, and for better or for worse, it is going to be the Senate, as close as it may be, that could decide how far you go in changes to tax policy, health care, 
immigration, all of those areas you talk about the concerns of. So I, I think, you know, what, what Mitt Romney and Joe Manchin could agree on, perhaps, with two pretty moderate guys, is kind of your, your worst-case scenario of what can get through, really through the Senate. That's going to be the big deal, isn't it? What happens in the Senate and what what those and particularly what Romney as a leader there will agree to. I think that's really key that we have to watch. Uh, we have to watch that. And as, uh, and as Sherlock Holmes said, follow the money. And lately you've seen the Wall Street Journal editorial page a lot more focused on the shape of the Senate races. David Ignatius uh, in The Washington Post today wrote an op-ed suggesting that China's technological advancement in this race is nowhere near our worst fears. Uh, they're struggling to keep up, and economically, they need us as much as we need them. Is, has any of the—and we're out of time here, of course—but has any of the dialogue, has any of the drama, the back-and-forth and trade war with China changed in any way? I think we're looking at the, again, the president is really pushing a harder line on decoupling. Again, how, what, what realistically can you decouple, though, in this economy? Can you separate and commoditize some portions of the economy and then, and then protect others? That's going to be an outstanding question. Uh, the president's definitely much more hawkish uh, and redirects on China. I think, though, you have to have a sober discussion because it is one like the uh, the, the missile gap. Maybe the near-term advantage is not there, but China will be a long-term competitor. Dan Mahaffey from the Center for the Study of the Presidency in Congress, and probably most important, the senior political analyst on the Farcast. Ladies and gentlemen, we're going to be right back. We're going to talk uh, more about Wall Street and more about the world. Bring a terrific guest. Stay with us. Thank you for joining us on this week's Farcast. Every week, we bring you experts and insiders to give a deeper understanding of our changing world. If you would be interested in Michael Farr delivering a presentation on the economic forecast for 2021 and beyond, please contact me, Harry Jennings, at 202-530-5608 or email me at hjennings at farmiller.com. In the past, Michael has delivered presentations at such venues as the Palm Beach Chamber of Commerce, the YPO Economic Summit, and the University of Delaware Economic Forecast. We are booking now for late 2020 and early 2021 for events where Michael will share his views into the recovery from the pandemic, including the consequences of the stimulus and the opportunities for investors. Reserve your date now on Michael Farr's speaking schedule. And now, back to Michael and the Farcast. Thank you for joining us on the Farcast. And now, back to your host, Michael Farr. We are back. Thank you so much for joining us again this week on the Farcast. A, a terrific Farcast this morning as we've reviewed markets to begin with and then talked with Dan Mahaffey about the changing odds in the presidential race and what that might mean for markets going forward and, and volatility up until the election. And everybody's very different perception of what a Trump victory or a Biden victory may mean for investors. Remember Farr's advice, stay the course. We've been through a lot of elections before, and over time, long-term investors still make money. Our next guest is a Farcast fan favorite, uh, one of uh, Farr's favorites, too, I have to tell you. 
Mona Mahajan is the U.S. chief U.S. investment strategist with Allianz Global Investors. She's a director with Allianz. She's been there uh, since uh, had that position since 2017. She's a member of the Global Economics and Strategy Team. She was a formerly uh, she was a fixed income portfolio manager. She has a degree in economics from the Wharton School. Uh, she has a degree in computer science, also from the University of Pennsylvania. And uh, as if those weren't good enough, folks, she has an MBA from Harvard, too. So one of the nicest, smartest, most insightful people on Wall Street we get to talk to on the forecast. Hey, welcome back, Mona. Thank you so much, Michael. Great to be here. Mona, we are looking at a uh, market after this sort of week-long, maybe 10 days worth of a tech wreck that seems uh, maybe over with after yesterday. It looks like the Dow futures are down a bit this morning, just slightly. NASDAQ futures are up, indicating rally in tech, and, and the rest of the market will probably get pulled along. Is the tech wreck over? What are you seeing, and what's your perspective about markets and where we've been this year from Allianz? Yeah, absolutely. Look, what a year. Um, since that low on March 23rd, keep in mind, we've been up at a phenomenal pace. The NASDAQ at its high was up 75% from that March 23rd low. Wow. So the S&P was up nearly 55%. So was anybody really overly shocked that there would be some sort of correction? You know, markets cannot go in, up in a straight line forever. At least we thought not. Yeah, um, but you know so what, we, Mona, Mona, I, you know, I think a lot of people were shocked. I mean, it, it still looked like there was a, you know, wailing in the night and gnashing of teeth. I mean, people thought there seemed to be a group who thought markets never go down. They were, they did seem shocked. It, it, it shocked me that they were shocked. Yeah, you know, fair point. The Robin Hood traders, for example, have come in more recently, perhaps haven't lived through many of the crisis that maybe you and I have seen in the past. Right. Um, but that being said, you know, um, Perhaps from a more positive vantage point, when we look at the technicals, especially on the NASDAQ, yes, we got about a 10% correction over three days, so very swift move. Uh, where we landed was right on what we call the 50-day moving average, which was a technical support level. If we had broken down severely before, below that, uh, there could have been more downside. But, but because we bounced so nicely off of that support, uh, we do think that's a positive signal. Now, could we get a little bit more volatility as we bounce you know, between the 50-day and back up to the 21-day? Absolutely. Um, but we do think that there is still elevated levels of cash on the sidelines. A lot of people didn't catch this 75 or at least the full 75% rally. And so they're looking for uh, opportunities to get involved. You know, what we are saying, though, keep in mind, we're, we're entering a period that is historically uh, seasonally tough. So not only have September and October been historically uh, not so kind to markets, they've been volatile months. Uh, we're entering again a period where cold and flu season, at least here in the Northeast, picks up. And so the virus trends come back to focus, especially as kids are going back to school. And then, of course, we're facing a presidential election cycle this year as well. You know, all that being said, while we may get some volatility uh, through the months of September and October, we do think that these will ultimately be tactical buying opportunities. You know, you do want to be involved in this market, particularly ahead of a potential um, global rebound in 2021. 
Okay, so uh, you, you, those were that, that. What a great synopsis! That was awesome. You know, you said it was the toughest part of the year. I started in this business. My first day uh, in this investment business on Wall Street was October fifth, nineteen eighty-seven. I had uh, two weeks <laughs> before the great crash. Uh, it was a wow. baptism by fire. Oh yeah. Uh, so thirty-three years ago, terrific. Coming up on that anniversary. Anyway, uh, I'm, I, I've never forgotten some of those scars, and and really uh, the the suffering that I saw across the board. Uh, lots of leverage was being used. A uh, lot of option trading was still kind of new to a lot of retail investors, and we didn't have computers. And it took days to get confirmations back from the floor of the New York Stock Exchange after it was closed. Uh, so mm. we have come miles and miles and miles. You 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 said a couple of things. I want to I want to come back to you. You suggested that we've had this dip, ten percent. It's been a bounce off that technical level. A lot of people missed this uh, missed this rally straight off the bottom, seventy five percent from the lows off of the Nasdaq, fifty five percent for the S and P. Do you buy this? Do you buy this dip? Do you what? And do you buy tech now? Do you get back into the Nasdaq yeah. now? So, you know, what we're saying is uh, if you don't have the exposure, we certainly think that uh, secular growth technology is a theme that is going to have long-term legs. You know, keep in mind, these are not one-year stories. These are three, five, ten-year stories that are really going to help drive growth and productivity in the U.S. economy. And, by the way, they do better in a lower-rate environment. They're longer-duration stories, so they tend to perform better in that, that environment, lower rate and lower growth. That being said, I think in the near term, perhaps call it 6, 12, maybe even 18 months, um, we think the theme will be a broadening out of participation. So in the U.S., that means it won't just be those large cap tech names that are driving uh, any upside participation over the next few months. It will also be those lagging cyclical sectors, you know, think areas like airlines and hotels and gaming, but also, you know, parts of financials and energy, the energy complex as well. So um, we get we get some of those well. we get some of those cyclicals, Mona. Do, do do we do we ever get that rotation back into the value names? I've been hearing that a lot. Even when I've been on CNBC, they're saying, you know, far this is the turning point for the tech stocks. They've had their day, and and value is now going to come along. Actually, Mona, I've heard that for about nine years at different points <laughs> during the year. They're like, now yeah. value now, but but we haven't had yeah. value now. No, it's it's unbelievable. Um, over the last 10-year period, since the last great financial crisis, it's really been a growth outperformance story. It's been growth over value. That being said, there have been about four time periods over the last 10 years where value has outperformed growth. And those time periods actually last, you know, about six to 12 months on average. And so it's not, you know, insubstantial. And could we be seeing uh, that type of period coming up over the next few months? Perhaps, you know, what could get us there? Well, of course, one would be the, the advent of a vaccine solution. Obviously, um, a vaccine right away won't be as meaningful. You have to manufacture, distribute it, change consumer behavior. But markets may start pricing that in earlier, you know, very forward looking, keep in mind. Uh, the other things that could get us there for value rotation, well, look, we could we could get a nice rebound in earnings growth next year. Already, estimates are showing, you know, down 20 percent in S&P earnings this year, but up 25 percent plus next year. And that's really driven by those areas that have been lagging, so energy and industrials and financials, all showing the biggest rebounds thus far. And then, of course, we're watching the virus trend. So even if we don't get a, a vaccine, perhaps 
the trends start to improve. And we're starting to see that here in the U.S. broadly in terms of new cases and new hospitalizations and new deaths, et cetera. Um, so those are all areas that, that could spark or those are all catalysts that could spark this value rotation. Um, that being said, we think you have to start building it slowly into your portfolio now, perhaps over this choppy time period when you're getting the opportunities. You know, folks, this is why I love talking to Mona Mahajan. She's always so clear. She's succinct. It all makes sense when you talk with If you get confused, what you need to do is find out what Mona's saying. Mona, I've got three other things I want to cover in about four sure. minutes I have left with, left with you. I, and, and I'm going to tell you all three of them right now, just to make sure we can get to them. And you decide how much time we want to spend. EU um, uh, stayed uh, pretty much steady this morning. We heard they're going to stay steady on their monetary policy. But they are facing the problem of a stronger euro. They're seeing that as a bit of a headwind for growth. And I'm wondering what you think about uh, prospects for the EU and what we could expect from the uh, European Central Bank. That's number one, because it's clearly uh, with Allianz, you have a great deal of expertise there. Two, as a former fixed income trader, what do you think about interest rates in the U.S. and the Fed's new uh, suggestion that they're going to be very flexible on their upside inflation target? And are you concerned about the massive amounts of debt we're accumulating? And finally, and you know, why, why can't we throw one more thing into three or four minutes? Uh, what effect do you expect elections are going to have? Yeah. Where would you like to start? <laughs> you know, that those are all great points. Maybe we can take them one by one, and I'll go quicker Good. on the EU and spend some time on the uh, the Fed and elections. But on Europe in general, look, they're facing a more severe downturn than we are. I think they'll be down 8%, negative 8% GDP, whereas we'll be down maybe negative 4, negative 5% this year. So they have a bigger hole to dig out of broadly. Uh, the tools they have in place are limited. They've already brought rates down to negative. They are providing more meaningful stimulus this crisis than I think in, they have in the past. Um, where we do like Europe in particular is their focus on clean energy and ESG. And so if you're looking to get exposure to those areas in particular, and they are areas that are, are growing in nature, particularly on the, the energy front, um, that's where we'd really look towards Europe as a leader. Uh, we also think, you know, if you're looking globally and you don't have the value cyclical exposure, there are some opportunities in Europe that they're primarily, their index is primarily a value cyclical one, heavy on industrials, energy, financials. Um, and they do perhaps offer some better valuations there as well. So those are on the, two on areas. On the clean energy yeah. and ESG, Mona, clean energy, I, I, I love clean energy always as a concept when I'm looking at it. And then when I drill down to the pricing, I mean, what, what, what the, the price at which many of these companies trade versus revenues versus income versus prospects, uh, I can't justify the valuations. Are you able to find a reasonably valued clean energy company in, in, in Europe? Are you, and, and how do you justify the valuations? Yeah, no, it's a fair point. A lot of, you know, a lot of, first of all, there's a limited number of public companies. So there's a lot of money perhaps gathered into a small group of, of stocks. And uh, it's more about the potential growth. So actually, a lot of the names, despite the valuations, have held up quite well. So in many you know, instances, we're just talking about putting the names in the portfolio. And, and if you're a longer-term investor, if you have that three, five, even 10-year horizon, we think you will do well. But fair point, the valuations haven't yet caught up to maybe where the earnings potential 
uh, will be heading. That, that um, happens a lot with a lot of rapid growers, right? I mean, when we see these yeah. emergent companies and emergent technologies, even in, in you know, uh, infotech, uh, cyber tech, the, the early on valuations are very expensive. It's just, and I and I struggle with those too, I got to tell you. I, I, I'm, I'm a bad hold your nose kind of guy when the numbers don't make sense. <laughs> I, I just don't do that. I, I love to see the numbers before I put my money down. Absolutely. And obviously better value in the other sectors that we talked about there. The valuations look relatively attractive even to what we see in the U.S. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Um, so then going, moving on to the Fed, perhaps, you know, it's, uh, that was a fascinating move as well. You know, again, not. Right. That was wild. Yeah. You know, the Fed had been talking about changing their, you know, inflation targeting um, policy or monetary function for some time. What they ultimately ended up doing was calling uh, for average inflation targeting. So meaning basically, uh, even if inflation runs hotter than their 2% target for core PCE, they'll allow it for an extended period of time, which they didn't define. You know, really from a market perspective, what that means is if we start to see inflation, and keep in mind when you typically when low, rates are this low, there is some risk of inflation. If we start to see inflation in the economy and it runs hot, that does have implications for interest rates, for example. So the 10-year yield now at 70 basis points, uh, it's still relatively low, could yeah. start to move higher. Um, and as you alluded to, the amount of debt we have right now in the economy, uh, which is going towards 100% debt to GDP in the U.S., uh, it can be worrisome. You know, from an economic perspective, what that really does is crowd out productive investing. And we might have talked about this in the past, but the government will now spend more on paying down interest payments rather than investing in productive areas like infrastructure or R&D. Let me stop you there just for one second, uh, because I want to really uh, uh, dumb that down for one more second uh, to make sure we make this point. If you have a, a ton of debt, if you're uh, this is like being house poor for for uh, an average citizen, you've bought a house that's too big. You have way too much mortgage. You don't have any money to invest in your 401k uh, or your or the stock market or other things because you're using all of your money to service the debt. So you've said uh, you've told the people at work, I can't uh, don't don't deduct for my 401k anymore. I've got to make my mortgage payment. That sent, that happens to countries too. They have they're spending so much money uh, on the interest on their debt that they don't have money to do other things. So we call that a crowding out of investing. Sorry, uh, Mona, I just wanted to make yeah, sure. Yeah, no, that was a great really explanation. Okay. Absolutely. And we're seeing that in Japan, for example, where their debt yes. levels are closer to 200% debt to GDP, and they've had a stagnant economy for some time. Now, the offset to that is the U.S. thus far hasn't really seen that stagnant economy. We're actually growing at a reasonable pace above potential growth, and we're expected to uh, be well above potential next year. So the debt level yet, we call it a yellow flag, uh, has not yet reached red flag level to us yet because we're not seeing the impacts yet on, on growth. Um, it's something to keep in mind, though, as we go forward and as these debt levels rise higher and higher. Um, so if we have a, a minute to talk elections, happy to please, do that as well. Please. Awesome. So clearly what we're seeing in elections thus far, um, first, Joe Biden has emerged as a front runner, but uh, the race has tightened, and that's happened really since the, the conventions a few weeks ago. Uh, we have definitely seen a little bit of momentum here and there. It, it comes and goes in the Trump campaign. 
from a market perspective, you know, a Joe Biden versus a Trump, the key differences are really Joe Biden is looking at higher taxes. So from a market perspective, not as friendly, but the offsets are really, he is proposing to use those taxes to invest in areas like, as we mentioned earlier, clean energy, but also technology R&D. Yes. And the other point I'll just make is on U.S.-China trade, which really, you know, over the last three years before the crisis hit, was the key source of volatility in the marketplace. And you would think a Joe Biden potentially would have a more stable approach. We do hear him talking about being, you know, more all-encompassing, using allies to get to the table, uh, whereas Donald Trump has all the incentive to to maintain his unilateral and somewhat unpredictable approach. So. You know, I think there are generally pros and cons, but from a market perspective, we are certainly watching the tax rate, the investment in energy and R&D, and then the U.S.-China trade policies. And so something to keep in mind as we uh, head towards November 3rd. The last point I'll just make quickly is that historically, markets tend to be more volatile in the six weeks prior to elections. And then really that time between November 3rd to year end, that tends to be a stronger period for markets, regardless of which party wins, because a lot of the uncertainty is lifted. And so if we see that historical pattern play out, we could be facing a potentially stronger year end, closer to that vaccine solution, and probably the time where you want to have your allocations ready uh, to go. I'm going to say that you sound cautiously optimistic, Mona, even from these levels. Is that right? Yeah, I think I think we are. I think uh, next year could be um, a strong year for markets, given the low rates and the growth potential. Keep in mind that broadening, though, it may not be the same winners from you know the pandemic that carry us through at least all the way. Mona Mahajan is the chief U.S. investment strategist for Allianz. She is a director. She is a fabulous economist. She is insightful. And I think she's just entirely brilliant. We are so glad that you would join us on the Farcast. Thank you, Mona. Thank you so much, Michael. Great to be here again. And and stay safe and healthy, everyone. You too. Thank you so much. Ladies and gentlemen, that's it for another Farcast. We'll be back again with you next week. Please share us on your social media with all of your friends. We're picking up lots of listeners all over the globe and getting notes from all of you from different countries. It's very exciting and very humbling. Uh, I'm coming to you this week from Rehoboth Beach, Delaware. I'm very grateful. Thank you so much. We'll be back next week. Thank you for joining us on this week's Farcast. We hope you've enjoyed the show as much as we enjoyed producing it. A special thanks to Michael's guests, Dan Mahaffey and Mona Mahajan. The Farcast is produced by Michael Farr and Harry Jennings and is available for free on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, and all major podcast platforms. Please subscribe and don't miss a minute. We'd love to hear from you. You can reach us at hjennings at farmiller.com. Let us know any questions you have and topics you'd like us to cover. We would like to remind you that the Farcast podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be considered legal or financial advice. Any mention of a specific security should not be construed as a recommendation to buy or sell, and please be aware that past performance is not a guide to the future performance of any index, fund, manager, or strategy. The information statements, comments, views, and opinions provided in this podcast are general in nature and not intended to be and should not be construed as the provision of investment advice by Farmiller in Washington or of any firm that any of our guests may represent. 
Farm Miller in Washington does not make any representation or warranty as to the accuracy or completeness of any of the information, statements, comments, views, or opinions contained in this podcast. And before you make any investment decision, we strongly recommend that you consult with a financial professional to determine what may be best for your individual needs and your goals. If we can be of assistance at Farm Miller in Washington, please reach out to me at hjennings at farmmiller.com. We are here to help, and I'll be happy to put any of our listeners in touch with one of our investment professionals for a complimentary review of your portfolio and, and your investment goals. Join us next week on the Farcast with our scheduled guest, Jim Labenthal, and the Washington Post's Heather Long. Go beyond the headlines each week with the Farcast. Wall Street, Washington, and the world. <laughs>